Okay, podcast time in Cleveland, and it's an unusual time in Cleveland, Laura, who'd have thought it? The boat show opens in the middle of January, and Lake Erie is ice-free. They could have had the boat show on the lake instead of indoors. Yeah, with in-water demos. Just kidding, the Sunday, the high is supposed to be 25, so that would not be so fun. Well, you've got to get out there, and if I don't start this thing, you won't get to go, so let's start. Welcome to This Week in the CLE, the podcast analysis of the latest news in Northeast Ohio by the region's top news team, the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn, here in our tiny podcast studio with co-host Laura Johnston, who later today will be on some giant boats. Some giant, crazy, expensive boats. Photographer Dave Pekowitz and I are teaming up again to show you some of the coolest, most luxurious models at the IX Center. The show runs until Monday with more than 450 new boats, plus all sorts of fun activities like scuba diving. Alas, this year there is no Twiggy, the water skiing squirrel. Sorry. You know, the timing of the boat show is interesting. It's the dead of winter, and I get it. Usually we're shivering this time of the year, and going to a boat show lets you escape and dream of warmer weather. This year has been anything but wintry, though, although I guess that is about to change. But when it comes to immediate immediate gratification, I wonder, am I more likely to buy a boat when there's snow on the ground or when the weather is warming up and I can use it right away? Well, the timing is purposeful because no one's coming to browse the showrooms right now anyway. And if you want to have your new boat by the time the weather is warm, your best bet is to shop the boat show. Because manufacturers generally make hundreds of boats a year, not thousands. It's not like a car. And if you wait until spring and you actually want something specific, you might not get your boat until the end of the season in August. You've been going to boat shows for a couple of years now as you've been coordinating rockthelake.com, our Lake Erie-focused website. Does it get old? I mean, you're... You're not in the market for a boat, nor do you own a boat. I mean, what's that like? I own a car, right? So I have some kind of interest in them. But for amusement, I'm not wandering around car lots or attending car shows. Who goes to these things? Is it just people who want to buy a boat? No, it's not. And I think it's just people who like the water and like Lake Erie and like the idea of revisiting this summer hot spot in the middle of winter. It's an annual event. People reunite with friends they see only during boating season. They get a drink. They check out the newest technology. They dream a little, listen to some Jimmy Buffett type tunes. It's just a nice escape for a weekend. All right. Well, let's get away from the escapism and bring in someone who doesn't work anywhere near the lake. Let's talk about some news in Akron. Welcome to the podcast, Robin Goyce. Thanks for making the drive up from Summit County. Of course. Thanks for having me. It always feels good to be back in the land. <laughs> All right. Where to start? You have had lots of interesting news lately. Let's start with Chapel Hill Mall, which when I was growing up was like a really big deal. It had a Chuck E. Cheese. So <laughs> how did we first find out this place was in financial trouble? Yeah. So there were a couple instances last year, once in April and then again in early December when Ohio Edison slash First Energy delivered warnings to stores at the mall that their power could be shut off if the mall's owner didn't pay the overdue electric bills. Uh, The mall's owner being Michael Cohen of New York-based Cohen Retail Investment Group. And in both instances, the owner paid the bills relatively quickly and the lights stayed on. And then just a couple weeks ago, on December 31st, mall tenants received a letter from Akron's deputy mayor, James Hardy, saying that water and sewer service would be shut off later that week on January 3rd due to overdue bills. And, uh, of course, having water shut off means breaking code requirements, so the mall would effectively shut down. So January 3rd rolled around, and that morning, the city issued a statement saying that water service would not be discontinued since the mall's owner made a sufficient payment. Okay, but 
they're still not out of the woods, right? The, their hope was short-lived, and it seems like they have an impossible challenge. Now we're talking property tax back taxes, right? Right. So the Summit County Fiscal Office told me that the partial payment for water and sewer was about $100,000. And as far as how much the mall still currently owes um, on Akron for its water and sewer bills, the city hasn't publicly disclosed that amount, but has said it's a six-figure balance. So that alone is substantial. But now... Um, oh, and that's also in addition to $340,000 that the city had certified over to the county in September uh, for overdue water and sewer bills. And it was back in September when the Summit County Fiscal Officer, Kristen Scalise, began having conversations in her office about potentially foreclosing on the mall, um, which her chief of staff has described as the number one delinquent property in Summit County. Mm-hmm. And so according to the foreclosure complaint filed this week, Chapel Hill Mall Realty Holdings LLC, which is managed by Michael Cohen owes $753,732 for unpaid real estate taxes, assessments, penalties, and interest. And also this week, Ohio Edison filed its own complaint for overdue bills in the amount of $195,714. So combined, Cohen would have to pay (laughs) just shy of a million dollars to wrap up these lawsuits, plus any court fees. You know, we try to let you know what questions we're going to ask so you can be prepared, but I'm going to throw you a curveball here. This is an employment center. There are people that have jobs there that that apparently are, are good because the, the stores are in business. It's the mall that's in trouble. Uh, do the economic development people in, in Akron, Summit County, have they done anything to try and prop this up to preserve all those jobs? I mean, if the mall itself has gotten into some kind of trouble because of money management, um, is there a way forward? Because, you know, it's probably some hundreds of retail jobs, right? Right. And I think um, a lot of economic development people might see more potential in what the mall could be. Right now, it's operating at about half capacity. Um, there used to be three anchor stores. Now there's only one. So I think... What, what's it like? Is it a pit? I've never been there, I don't think. Is it a pit? Is it falling apart? Or is it still kind of a nice place? Yeah, it's not too bad. From talking with locals, it's still a far cry away from like the Rolling Acres Mall when it sort of died its own slow death. Um, but, you know, like I said, right now there's only a J.C. Penney's. There used to be a Sears and a Macy's, and those closed in 2016-2017. I would offer to do a photo gallery of what the mall looks like, but there's actually signs posted all up over the place that you can't take photos in the because mall. Because people love the dead <laughs> mall photos. Yes, like It's exactly. like a whole online phenomenon. Right. So if it closes, does it have another use? Is it in a location that someone might find desirable? I you know, would Amazon want to build another warehouse there? Uh, what what would the future be if it was not a mall? Yeah, it's a really desirable location. So it's on Akron's north side. It's right up against Cuyahoga Falls and Talmadge and very close to State Route 8. And although people aren't flocking to the mall like they used to, um, they're definitely flocking to the Chapel Hill Shopping District on Howe Avenue in Cuyahoga Falls. It's right around the corner. Those parking lots are always packed. The mall's not so much. And the fiscal office has said that if the foreclosure you know, goes if the, if the property is foreclosed, then most likely uh, what they're hoping for is they would use the Summit County Land Bank. Um, that's a nonprofit that rehabilitates properties. Uh, the financial officer, Kristen Scalise, is the chair. Summit County Executive Eileen Shapiro is the vice chair of the Land Bank. And it was through pretty similar proceedings that Summit County foreclosed on Rolling Acres Mall in mm-hmm. 2013. And there were years of negotiations that involved the city of Akron and a private developer that, of course, turned out to be Amazon. And so 
Could this be another Amazon warehouse? Uh, who knows? It's only about 10 miles away from the Rolling Acres site. And like what you said, Rolling Acres had like the entire Roaming Road strip had just nobody was there anymore. So if this maybe there's another viable like business opportunity like that people could go to if maybe that's what they're hoping well, for. Let me ask because she brought it up. Do they still have the Chuck E. Cheese? I don't know. I don't I, think so. I actually I Googled that the so, other day. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I think it's gone. <laughs> PC your childhood. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the city of Akron has expressed its own wishes to hopefully uh, revitalize that property. And they've said that the flexibility of the zoning could allow for even a mixed use of commercial, residential, retail, light industrial use. Cool. All right. So let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about the Twinsburg police. Two Twinsburg officers did a favor for a Cleveland cop they pulled over for drinking by not charging him and helping him get home. I think this was on Christmas Day. And that doesn't vol violate Twinsburg police policy? Yeah. And so, and it wasn't just any Cleveland cop. It was the captain of the 4th District. His name is John Sotomayor. And it was about 1130 at night on Christmas Day. Someone called 911 about an apparently drunk driver on 480. Uh, she said that other people had been honking and waving for him to pull over because he was swerving between lanes. Uh, so he had pulled over on the side of 480 eastbound in Twinsburg. Two Twinsburg officers showed up. Uh, they saw his ID saw that he was a Cleveland police officer and asked him a few questions. Did he have a gun? Yes, it was on his hip. Um, where was he coming from? He said, Cleveland. Uh, where in Cleveland? A holiday party? And he says, no, Cleveland. You know, he's um, not giving a lot of straight answers. He's slurring his words. Uh, the officers say that there was a smell of alcohol in the trunk, but in the truck, but they really level with him, uh, saying that they knew he just wanted to get a ride home. So they let him call his wife to come pick him up and they tow his truck. And they didn't administer any sobriety tests. And days passed, and it wasn't until media outlets, including Cleveland.com, reported that these officers had given him a break. And the Twinsburg Law Director announced last week that Sotomayor would be charged with physical control of a motor vehicle while under the influence of alcohol, which is a first-degree misdemeanor. Which is tough to prove because they didn't do the test. So exactly. The, the, the case had video, which is pretty amazing because the officers actually say, hey, we're trying to do you a favor, which, you know, most drivers don't get that kind of favor. And yet that's not a violation of the policy. Yeah, it's really disheartening. A quote from the video that we've had in all of our stories on Cleveland.com. And, and just imagine this being said to literally anyone else. We can smell the alcohol in the car. We're trying to give you a break here. You're driving with alcohol in your system and a gun on your hip. We got calls about you driving up the freeway on the shoulder. You're trying to find your way home. I don't want to have to put you in handcuffs and take you to jail. You know what's going on here, right? So yeah, all of that, no sobriety tests, no citation, all these favors, and uh, no policies were found to be broken, especially since uh, the police chief, Christopher Noga, issued a statement saying that officers were following one of the department's policies, which is not to let an impaired driver drive away. Yeah, because okay. they're supposed to take them to jail. Right. And the whole thing is when you drive drunk, you're supposed to be charged. So what's happened to him now? Like, he's been charged, right? So... Right. And um, so that was in traffic court. He actually didn't show up for his arraignment this week. So there was a possibility that a warrant was going to be issued for him. But his lawyer later that afternoon faxed in his not guilty. I love that. Plea. Faxed in. I didn't yeah. even know you still do that. <laughs> and so when I checked the docket this morning, he still didn't have a court date set up. But I guess we'll be looking out for that. All right, let's move on to Akron, where the city council seems to have grown weary of people saying crazy things at council meetings. I covered a lot of council meetings. I can understand their weariness, but they've adopted some pretty draconian rules for public comment, which, which 
you know, flies in the face of serving your constituents. So what what's going on there? So last week was the uh, first meeting for the um, new city council, and they passed a new set of rules that included some reorganization of their committees and some new abilities for council officers. But most notably, there were changes to what is known as the public comment period. Previously, at the end of each regularly scheduled Monday night meeting, anyone could approach the podium. They're supposed to say their name and address and talk for about three minutes about an issue pertaining to council business or under council's purview. And under the new rules, anyone wishing to speak has to show up before the council meeting starts and submit a form with their name, address, contact info, and a description of what they want to talk about. And the form also says that the council president has the authority to rule comments out of order and that the speaker could be removed from chambers. And to top it all off, they passed these rules at last week's meeting, which was, to the surprise of many, considered a special meeting. And so there was no public comment period (laughs) at all. I loved your story on this because you point out on the website where it lists this, it does say public comment portion. Like you spell out very succinctly, uh, yeah, like they were changing their rules on this. Um, But And then there was one council member who was trying to warn the new people, like, guys, this is... You don't want to do this. I mean, do they realize how draconian these rules seem? Is there any chance they're going to town this down uh, once they realize that they're cutting off public free speech? Right. So these rules were passed 12 to 1. The lone nay vote came from Ward 4's Russ Neal. And, um, you know, he was telling especially the new members to council that they might not be aware that and it's pretty calm. You know, I've seen it myself that people come in halfway through the meeting or really at the very end and they have something really important that they want to share during the public comment period. And so he had suggested uh, waiting a week to review these rule changes and see if we wanted to pass them. But I think most of council kind of wanted to vote in the new rules so that starting this week they could get to new legislation. Um, but like uh, Linda Mobian, she's an out-large councilwoman. She voted in favor of the rules but said that she hopes that they're revisited in the coming weeks or months. And I think that, um, you know, depending on how this goes, is anyone denied the right to speak? Is anyone escorted out of a meeting? You know, these questions raise sort of First Amendment red flags. So I think we'll see how it all plays out. You know, public comment sessions are always a mixed bag. And the, and the council members that want to limit them have argued over the years that I was elected to conduct the city's business. I'm the representative of the public. And having people talk for a half hour, an hour, waste my time. And you do, in these things, have wacky people come in and just start railing. But it is the one place where people get to face their elected officials. This is the accountability factor. So you've been in Akron's meetings. What have you seen in the public comment sessions that would have driven this kind of change? Overall, I think the public comment periods have been really fruitful and worthwhile. It's obviously a great way for someone to weigh in on any piece of legislation. And I've also seen some people come in to speak about the effects of something that council had previously passed, uh, sometimes to thank them, sometimes to let them know about issues that had arisen. And are these sometimes things that could be brought to the attention of individual council members via a phone call or email um, or going to a ward meeting? Sure. But it's also a way to address these issues to council as a whole and to do it on the public record and in a very public way. So are there some people who routinely uh, speak about stuff that council doesn't care about? Sure. But in my opinion, 
at the meetings, it doesn't take up a significant enough chunk of time for this to have really been an issue. All right. We should point out that in Cleveland, the council does not permit any kind of public comment, though council member Bashir, Bashir Jones has called on his colleagues to change that. And our editorial board has agreed with them. Yeah, it's only fair. The council members each get up and can drone on every meeting. Why shouldn't the public get a moment to do it, even if they put the limits on of a half hour and first come, first served? All right, one more for you, Robin. Akron has been fighting with the U.S. EPA for years about its sewer system, which regularly pumps raw sewage into the Cuyahoga River. For a few years now, they've worked together under a consent decree on an expensive overhaul. But we learned recently that Akron has missed at least one key deadline. So what's up with it? Yeah, so Akron entered into a consent decree with the EPA in 2014 that requires a series of fixes be completed by 2028 uh, to bring the city's sewer system into compliance with the Clean Water Act and to stop these old sewers from overflowing into the Cuyahoga River. And the biggest project is to finish a mile-long Ohio Canal interceptor tunnel, which was supposed to be completed by the end of 2018. So the city is months behind and has contributed these delays to the complexity of the project, which included the construction of a huge tunnel boring machine. Is that the Rosie? That is the Rosie. All right. So what is the status of the project overall? I mean, the rest of the stuff seems to be on track. Yep. They're saying that um, a lot of the projects are on track and even some of them are ahead um, of schedule. But the you know largest one, the canal interceptor, is behind. And so last month, the federal judge overseeing the consent decree was really unhappy with the city as well as the Ohio and U.S. EPAs because he said they didn't keep him appraised of all of the delays and uh, specifically this most recent missed deadline. And so the judge, John Adams, was considering appointing a monitor to ensure that Akron complies with everything in the consent decree. Both the city and the feds uh, last week uh, submitted filings saying that the court doesn't need to appoint a monitor, that the consent decree gives the EPA sufficient enforcement power to oversee the project. And uh, like I said, the city has said that it has met most of its other deadlines and is even ahead of schedule on some projects. And since we're talking about it, how is Akron paying for this? What's the total estimated cost? The price tag is estimated at more than $1.2 billion, and it is paid for by Akron Water ratepayers. So funnily enough, uh, the costs would be somewhat offset if the Chapel Hill mall owners actually paid their water bill. <laughs> Bringing that right um, around. But yeah, so it's essentially the taxpayers. The city has said that it continues to look for ways to save money and says that it saved more than $80 million on project costs and $118 million through innovative financing. Interesting. All right. Well, thanks, Robin. It's good to see you. Good to see you, too. Thanks for having me. In a moment, we'll move our attention to the Cuyahoga County and ask how county officials screwed up the property tax bills. You're listening to This Week and the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Courtney Astolfi. Hello, hello. So one of the biggest stories of the week was about the county hiring a law firm to negotiate incentives to keep Sherwin-Williams here. The explanation was about how complicated it is to work with a public trading company. Police. But wait, wait. It's not just the county. Both the city and county did this. It was a, we we can't just point to one. They're both being sleazy. Yeah. So what I've learned, at least on the county side, we're still waiting on answers from the city. But in my conversations with the county, you know, we've learned several things about this. Earlier this week, the county approved up to $70,000 to retain the Almer and Byrne law firm to help them put together the incentive package the county is going to be offering Sherwin-Williams to persuade them to stay here. And um, the reason behind it, law director Greg Huth said that this expertise was needed because 
this is a publicly traded large company. Yeah. There's legal nuances here. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. So as soon as I saw this, I, I see red because it's lawyer-client privilege. We have a long history of governments around here who, when they want to conduct the public's business outside of the public's view, they hire a law firm. And because you have lawyer-client privilege with a law firm, then the records that are generated in that, they get to just take the public records exemption and say, well, it's lawyer-client privileged. Um, it, the reason this is troubling is that the county and the city both were ready to give away enormous, enormous amounts of cash and other incentives to Amazon to get them here. We had to take both to court to get that thing, finally, to find out what they were going to give away. And here it seems like they're laying the groundwork to be able to not give us the the full package. So so say, say Sherwin-Williams stays. We'll get whatever they ultimately give them. But you don't get any of the negotiation or what they might have been willing to give away as we as we ultimately did with Amazon. So, you know, you've drilled the county pretty hard. We're we're doing the same thing with the city. What are they saying about that? You know, the county repeatedly, emphatically, over and over has told me this week this is absolutely not why they hired the law firm. They went back to that discussion of they need them to navigate the legalities of this. But, but stop, stop. Okay, look, they say it's a public company. Public companies always get incentives. They're working with Jobs Ohio. They're working with the city. All three of these regularly provide incentives to public companies. That that explanation carries no weight. It, just think about it. It's complicated because what, what are they going to do? They're going to give what, – what, think about what the incentives are. You either give them discounts on taxes. You create tax – incentive districts where any increase in the in the value of the property the taxes it generates go back goes back to the improvements i mean they've been doing this for a long time it's not that complicated are they giving you any clue as to why they believe this is more complicated the discussion has been limited to kind of what i said the the complexities of the publicly traded company but i'm throwing the yellow flag here (laughs) because i'm not buying it fair enough um you know we did specifically ask the county whether, you know, they would pledge to not use this attorney-client privilege with this law firm to, to, to hold back information as this deal and the negotiations move forward. They wouldn't out, outright they won't do it. pledge to do that. They said they'd give us as much as they could. I but, mean, can't the, they use business secrets to hold? Could they use business secrets, trade secrets to try and hold other public records in that don't have to do with the law firm or... I mean, have they said, we, we give you stuff we don't have to anyway? You know, I think proprietary information concerns is what they use to try and hold back the Amazon information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it didn't that work. That didn't fly it in didn't the court fly. of claims. Just but it took a it. long time to and get And when out. they say they're going to give us what they can, they can give us anything they want. The exemption allows them... When there's a public records exemption that actually applies, it gives them the ability not to, but they don't have to employ it. So when we're saying, look, we want a guarantee that you're going to provide the full story on this negotiation, they won't do it. And that's troubling. And the paying a law firm $70,000 sets up the lawyer-client privilege argument down the road, which will be all over. And, you know, if we have to, we'll take them to the 
court of claims. You know, it may be that we really should be lobbying the legislature to say that the lawyer-client privilege exemption should only apply to true legal matters. You know, there there are governments that have used law firms to do uh, job searches. You know, they need some official in the government. You hire a law firm to vet that process. It's all lawyer-client privileges. You know, you never find out who the candidates were, whereas if they had done it in-house, you always find it out. That's not really what the lawyer-client privilege is supposed to be. So it's something to pay attention to. You know, one thing I think is interesting in having this discussion, I talked to Executive Director of Common Cause Ohio, Catherine Terser, and she pointed out that, yeah, it's understandable that counties feel like they've got to keep some of this close to the vest because of competitive advantage and stuff. However, she she really emphasized the point that not only ought the pub should the public know what the final details are of such incentive packages, but to really have an informed discussion about this, the public should have a better understanding of what led to and what went into all that decision making. So she said, you know, particularly in the case where a company has strong roots in a community, they often want to stay there. These deal deta- deals at times can amount to to corporate welfare and to have that hearty discussion of what we're offering. Look, the, the public look, needs to be brought in, look, she, she said. She, she's a hero. I love her. But <laughs> look, the, and there are a lot of people worried about Sherwin-Williams leaving. I mean, they have 4,000-plus high-paying jobs. It's a company that has a very, very long-term future because there's really no technology that, that looks likely to replace the coatings that they make. I don't think there's anybody in town that wants them to leave or doesn't think the government should provide the incentives to keep them here. But it is a government that represents the people. They owe it to the people to explain how they are talking about the money. And that, that, that as soon as this came up, it was complicated. Give me a break. There's nothing complicated about incentives to companies. It happens every day. What what lawyer-client privilege does is is blocks the public records. Um, so we need some good news after that. And this is unexpected news. Cuyahoga County was the state's leader in a key economic metric. What is it and can it really be true? We've been hearing nothing about um, except how bad we are. Well, the you know, the county this, uh, recently honed in on some federal data that was released last month that shows Cuyahoga County's GDP, gross domestic product, one of the best indicators of the health of our economy here, was at um, $88.7 billion in 2018. We lead the state. We beat out Franklin County. We beat out Hamilton County. And looking at the federal data, it looks like that's been the case for the past couple years. Um, I, Cuyahoga County, though, what I thought was interesting had 2% growth over between 2017 and 2018. And that's been the largest growth Cuyahoga County's had in the past couple years. Franklin County had a 2.1% growth. So it looks like the growth rates are similar, but we're still on top. Okay. So there's no weird explanation for this that would negate what it means. Like they don't count the government type jobs in Columbus or how do we compare to other Midwest cities outside Ohio, like Indianapolis? Yeah. So we also looked at uh, data from Marion County where Indianapolis is and they were at 83 billion. So, you know, about five, just over five behind us. And then Allegheny County where Pittsburgh is, they were at 86.8 billion. Uh, But I will note that in, in that County, they had a 3.2% increase. So their growth Mm -hmm. is a little bit more than, than ours was. 
All right. I love this next story partly because I have a personal connection to it. Your colleague Rich Exner wrote it, but it involves the people you cover. The county screwed up a bunch of property tax bills, which is kind of amazing. It's the basic function of county government to collect property taxes, but they bungled it. So how so? Yeah, so this this mess up affects people in Cleveland Heights, in East Cleveland and Shaker Heights. And the property tax bills that were originally sent to these folks, some, some of these folks didn't include special assessments, such as those that are levied for street lights, trees, local stuff like that. And more than a week after they discovered the error, they sent out new bills along with a yellow sheet of paper explaining that they made the error. That yellow sheet of paper also said they did not know how they made the error. Have they figured that out yet? Yeah, so the county told Rich that that their outdated computer system for billing was the, the culprit here. So the way we learned about this screw up is that I myself received the notice. I was on the road Monday. Uh, I got home at the in the evening and I had a second tax bill and I just paid my tax bill the day before. And I thought, that's never happened before. And when I opened it up and saw the yellow sheet of paper, I called your editor and I said, hey, did we have a story today about how the county screwed up the tax bills? And we didn't. So we were going to have it the next day. So I've, I've got to say, I love this. Is there any way we could get the county council to pass an ordinance so that every time the county screws something up, which is regularly, they are required to send the notice to the leader of the biggest news outlet in town with a yellow sheet of paper to make sure it doesn't escape notice? You know, I'll let them know we're looking for that. That would make my job easier. <laughs> All kidding aside, this is serious. Uh, will they penalize people who are, have already paid their bill and don't pay the extra because they didn't read the fine print? And why didn't the corrected bill make clear what the difference in the two bills is for people who don't do the math? So for for that last question, the county saying that their computer system didn't allow them to do that. Um, as far as penalties, <laughs> Wait, they, they're, they're could do it with a calculator and write it out. doesn't allow them to do basic math. I mean, a spreadsheet can do that. <laughs> what about their computer system doesn't allow them to, to take two numbers and subtract one from the other? That's hilarious. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> as far as the, the penalties go, uh, a spokeswoman said that state law lays out penalties for late taxes. They did extend the deadline from January 23rd to the 30th for everybody, but the spokeswoman said they can't stray from the state the, law. The danger is that for, for everybody has gotten a second notice of a bill, and for people who have paid that bill, when that shows up, if they think, oh, they're sending me a second reminder, they might toss it into the trash without ever looking at it and then not pay, and then they're paying a penalty. From my reading of it, it sounds like the, the percentage penalty will be based on the unpaid part of the bill, not the total, so it wouldn't be much, but but I'm a little bit surprised. For the record, I'm not kidding about the notice being sent to my house when they screw up. It'll keep the Cleveland Heights Post Office in business. Right, and every other government agency too, right? So I have faith in you, Courtney. You can get this done. Thanks for coming by. All right, bye, guys. Coming up, guardians of babies born to opioid addicts want to join together in a lawsuit against the drug companies. It's this week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Eric Heising. Good to be back. Happy New Year to both of you. <laughs> Eric, you I had no idea how many babies are born to people addicted to opioids. You had a story this week that the people caring for those babies want the drug companies to pay for their care. 
Yes. Yeah, I absolutely had that story. This is something that's been unfolding as kind of a little bit of the corner, a little bit in a corner of this large set of litigation that has been consolidated in front of a federal judge here in Cleveland. A lot of the focus has been on the cities and counties and their claims against the drug companies and how they say they fueled the opioid crisis in the last 10 or 20 years. Um, There's been other parts of this, too, and one of them that just hasn't gotten as much attention really is these Uh, The guardians, the parents, a lot of times, though, the grandparents, the aunts, the uncles, and the um, adopted parents of a lot of these kids who were born with uh, opioids in their system. So this case already has 2,000 guardians in it, and if they get class status, your story said they could get more. How many more? I mean, could this be tens of thousands or— that's a good question, and I'm not sure if I have a good answer. I'm not sure if the lead attorneys, which includes former Ohio Attorney General Mark Dan, necessarily have a good answer for that. And the reason is the uh, a lot of these babies were born with what is called neonatal abstinence syndrome. And neonatal abstinence syndrome is not necessarily something very specific. It is kind of a catch-all term for just about every symptom an infant could have if they're born with opioids in their system. So you know, the way a hospital ends up classifying NAS in one in one place may not be the same way it does it in another place or in another state. So it, I, I would think it would end up reaching probably north of 100,000, but that's probably wow. a conservative estimate. And it's probably hard to quantify at this point because they haven't started reaching out. There's limited research for these kind of things. And, you know, there's a lot of legwork that needs to be done to actually get a good, accurate count. With all the government seeking money from the pharmaceutical companies and now this, is there a risk drug companies are just going to declare bankruptcy and get out of paying everyone? Get out of paying everyone? Probably not if they end up getting found liable or if there's some sort of settlement. I think the better question is if it is if it does go into something like bankruptcy, which we have seen with a company like Purdue Pharma, really kind of the poster child for the big manufacturer in this litigation, a lot they're going to be splitting probably 10 or 11 billion dollars when all is said and done at least according to the current estimates but they're going to have to split that among everybody so it's not that nobody's going to get paid it's really a question of how little or how big of a chunk anybody's going to be able to get well when you talk about a, a, the potential for 100,000 or more i remember during the crack years in the in the 90s there were a lot of babies born to crack addicted uh, moms who were seriously messed up and and a lot of money was needed to to care for them, a lot of money. And so if you're talking about similar costs for more than 100,000 kids, I don't see how they don't declare bankruptcy because it just that seems like a staggering sum of money. Have, have the court papers gotten to the level of what the cost could be per child? No, and one of the things that is called for in this, we're talking basically about a motion to file class action status, which is essentially asking the judge to give them permission to start reaching out to other people and form a larger group so they can all go together and form the drug company or go after the drug companies. A part of that is to form basically study groups to look at those kind of issues. So that is baked into there, but it really hasn't happened yet. Are there others who might sue too, like parents or relatives of people who died of overdoses? Probably not. You've seen the occasional lawsuit like that, but they necessarily haven't gone really far. Um, You may end up seeing, you see a lot of that though with, you know, a lot of the lawsuits filed by cities and counties. And and we're talking a a lot of these cases are not necessarily, you know, for example, the cities and counties, they're going after the drug companies to recoup the costs 
of what they had to pay as part of the opioid crisis. Really, though, the secondary and tertiary reasons to do that, though, are to go after and get and seek some sort of justice for those people who died in the living relatives. All right. You also wrote about an interesting case this week involving the Cleveland Fire Department, a bunch of white lieutenants who were suing the city, claiming they were discriminated against when it came to promotions. And it sounds like, based on the, the numbers they're throwing around, that there might be some merit to their claim. The numbers are the numbers. Uh, we're talking basically about a 24 white lieutenants who ended up suing the city of Cleveland saying, the test you gave in 2017 ended up discriminating against us um, as we sought the promotion to captain um, because a larger percentage of the black uh, candidates ended up getting picked for captain um, than their white counterparts. It's not necessarily that more black candidates were selected. It's just the percentage of those who are eligible versus those who actually got picked. So the city has a longstanding race problem in the fire department. I covered it when I was a city hall reporter. It's overwhelmingly white. It always has been. The city has tried. Every mayor has tried to bring diversity to make it look more like the community it serves. So I wouldn't be surprised if the city took some shortcuts to change that but but this kind of shortcut, if if these lieutenants are are accurate in their portrayal, would not be legal, right? It would not. Okay, that is a, that is kind of a difficult question to ask because there are certain things in the law that allow the city to basically say, "Look, this happened for a reason, and it was justified." Um, but some of the things that the white lieutenants are pointing to as evidence that, yes, this was a very intentional thing are statements made by public officials, including, um, I believe it was Mike McGrath and then Councilman Jeff Johnson talking about the need to do exactly that, bring more minorities into the department. So if they can show that that was a direct correlation to anything that may have happened with the testing and the selection process, yeah, that could end up being a problem. In this city, the police union has, is, is almost like a circus atmosphere. They fight everything. There's no rational thought. I mean, they're still trying to get the badge back for the guy who killed Tamir Tim Rice. Is, is the fire union the same kind of thing, or is the fire union a little more temperate about what it does? I guess what I'm asking is, is would, will, will the fire union oppose everything the city does the way the police union does, or do they pick and choose their cases? They pick and choose their cases, but the union, I, I don't know if this is a fair way to put it, but the union and the police department, for the, at least the patrolmen's, at least show up as a unified front. Um, I'm not sure you can always say that about the, the fire union, um, because there are certainly factions that kind of are going against each other. Certainly, as you said, there's been a race problem in the fire department for 45, 50 years, probably even farther back than that, but that's when the litigation started. And I mentioned the litigation because since about 1973, there have been fat members of that union, both black and white, who have ended up suing the city for issues saying we were discriminated against. So it's I don't know if you can say it's as much of a unified front as at least the Cleveland Policeman Police Patrolmen's Association appears to be at a lot of times. I'd like just to point out for all of these that we're talking about in this this current discrimination case, uh, case they're all men, right? They are all <laughs> men, but because they're like are like ten women tops. Okay, I don't know the actual number, but I feel it's like it's single from digits of women in this department, which is an entirely different but related problem. Uh, the vanguards represent the vanguards who are the people that represent basically the minorities among the minorities they represent are women but yes it is a separate but related problem. Okay just wanted to point that out so thank you for coming by Eric. Yeah, thank you for having me. Jane Cahoon will be here in a moment to talk about how ODOT squanders our money. 
This Week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Jane, and congratulations on hitting your 35th anniversary with The Plain Dealer in Cleveland.com. Thanks, Laura. I was thinking that maybe uh, after making it through 35 years here, I should try out for Survivor, but I don't want to eat bugs. I'd rather work with you guys. I hate, to, I hate to tell you this, Jane, but you've actually only been here five years. It just seems like 35 because <laughs> you've had to work with me. Dysfunction makes the, te- the time go longer. Speaking of dysfunction, let's talk about the Ohio Department of Transportation. Yes, let's do that. A recent audit says that ODOT is wasting our money. This is shocking news. <laughs> oh, this is a tough crowd today. Yes, Auditor Keith Faber came out with an audit saying that ODOT could save $10 million to $21 million a year if they did road and bridge inspections themselves instead of using contractors. Now, ODOT, they were receptive to the recommendations, but they did note that contracting out gives them some flexibility. You know, they wouldn't have to send workers to far-flung areas of the state, et cetera. I, I kind of would love to know <laughs> how much money the firms getting these consulting contracts donate to political causes. Because, I mean, 10 to $21 million, <laughs> that is a boatload of money you can save. And and if, you, if they're saying you can save that much, it means that you're kind of wasting it with these firms. And ODOT, yeah, you, you're right. They were a little bit receptive, but a little, <laughs> little bit not. And look, let's face it, this wasn't uh, an audit ODOT sought freely. They were forced to do this. Correct. When state lawmakers approved the state transportation budget and increased the gas tax, they thought it would be prudent to try to look for ways to save money. So they and, authorized favor. And that turned out to be really true. <laughs> yes. But there's more to come, right? Like, we're not done with this audit yet. Right. This was just the first phase. There's another phase that's going to be, I think, much more comprehensive and take in much more of ODOT's operations, like their materials acquisition and scheduling and things like that. Yeah, the scheduling and the construction work. Anybody <laughs> who has ever seen a construction crew standing around on the side of the road, which is everyone who drives, has wondered how much money we're squandering with wasted time. So I'm, I'm reading into the second part of the audit that we might get at that, that in, the inefficiencies that result in people standing around doing nothing. <laughs> One would think this, as I said, it's going to be a much more comprehensive look. Okay, another agency with some challenges is the office that administers Medicaid. We learned this week that the new computer tracking system is pretty much a disaster. It has released private information, assigned children to people who are not their guardians, deleted information, mixed up all sorts of stuff. This sounds horrible. Um, (laughs) Yes, the director of Medicaid, Maureen Corcoran, wrote a memo to the governor. And in the very first paragraph, she said, we inherited a mess. She really scorched the Kasich administration about this. And she said this $1.2 billion information technology program that they use called Ohio Benefits has 1,100 defects, as you mentioned, assigning kids to the wrong guardians or parents and privacy breaches where they're sending letters to uh, enroll enrollees letters to the wrong to, to other wrong enrollees people. it's and, a major violation yeah. <laughs> of privacy <laughs> right and this eligibility uh, all these mistakes i was a, i was a little bit surprised at the defensiveness of the Kasich administration 
Let's face it, the Kasich administration, one of the bold things they did, you can criticize that administration for all sorts of things, but they boldly expanded Medicaid. They had to take a weird strategy to do it because Republicans in the state were thwarting it. So they could have said, look, we greatly expanded this thing. We got it launched. And yeah, there might be problems that, that the next administration has to fix, but at least we're doing the right thing. Instead, they were like, oh, we did a great job. We did a great job. We did a great job. And we, you know, we hope they can carry it forward. It was a, it was pretty lame response. Yes, they they did, you know, talk about how they expanded it and they do deserve the credit for expanding it. But but it's a disaster. I feel I mean, like it, we talk every week about a different government agency and their bad PR. Like, if you had just told us this, the story wouldn't have been as bad. Or, well, they, or, or send a notice to my house. Either way, I'm good with thinking, either. Like, is this computer system related to the county tax computer system? Yeah. They actually dragged out the old, oh, we had a budget hole and we fixed yeah, it. Right, yeah, right. The $8 billion. With, with With local <laughs> money. Thank you. This has some uh, urgency because next year, Ohio is supposed to start forcing the recipients of Medicaid to work. But if the database is so cockeyed, how do you track people who need to do the work and who, you know, gets an exemption? Can they get this fixed by well, next year? Well, that was one thing Maureen Corcoran brought up was that, yes, they're still working with this timeline, but they're going to have to take a good hard look at that. If they don't resolve these problems before then, it might have to be delayed, which would probably make a lot of advocates for the poor happy because well, they don't like the work requirements and and, and and really there have been a lot of stories it's the work requirements are pretty much unworkable because you that th- it's finding the jobs and, and many many people on medicaid work and we had signs that this was a problem system because it's the same system that that has been food banks all came in and said hey we used to do a lot of the work that this system is doing and this system is a disaster that was about eight months ago right so. i think the food banks have like a helpline where they're helping people right. with <laughs> get, the, get past the <laughs> gigantic mistakes the state is making right, right right all right let's talk about one more Laura Hancock did a story this week about how overdose deaths across the state fell for the first time in a decade can you talk about that one? Yes, the, this is old data from 2018, partly because coroners have months and months to submit this information, but it did confirm what we knew to be a decline in overdose deaths for 2018 after a peak in 2017. They were down 22.7%. I wonder what's caused this. It, 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 is it something where the epidemic burns itself out, meaning that the vulnerable populations to this addiction, you know, so many people have died or, or hit the low and been treated, which is more or less what happened with the, the crack cocaine epidemic we were talking about earlier in the podcast from the 90s. I'm sure there are a lot of people who want to take care of it, and we know that Narcan, uh, the spread of Narcan has helped save right. uncountable lives. I just wonder if anybody can truly get it, why this has dropped so precipitously. I don't know. There, there also have been... Uh, they've tightened up the prescription writing requirements, which might have something to do with it. The prescription overdoses are down. But fentanyl and fentanyl analogs are a major, major factor in these overdoses, and that's still a huge problem. 
So if this were for 2019, I would have said it's because of all the free, the legal weed in Michigan. People <laughs> <are> just... <laughs> well, do we have any idea of how 2019 went? If if deaths are going to continue to decrease? I'm sorry to tell you that I think it's going to be the opposite. We mm-hmm. we already know in Cuyahoga County where Evan McDonald's been tracking this that they're going to have an increase, and I think statewide they're they're going to have another increase. It's not going to come close to the peak in 2017, but I think it's going to go up again. I wonder if that's because in 2019 you saw fentanyl being mixed with cocaine right, in larger and numbers. Right, methamphetamine, right. So it moved more heavily into the urban areas and that, that that hit a whole new population. Right. Well, thank you, Jane. It's always good to have you back. Glad to be here. Coming up, we have Troy Smith on this year's Rock Hall inductees. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Troy Smith. I'm here. Before we get to the 2020 Rock Hall inductees, let's talk about how you scooped the world on who they are. And the Rock Hall was none too pleased with you. Oh, boy. Uh, it was like Christmas around here. <laughs> uh, it certainly was for <laughs> me. I journalism Christmas from an entertainment standpoint. Uh, I guess I should just explain, you know, I want to shout out Future Rock Legends, which is a blog um, that this guy Neil runs, and uh, he's... To me, it's the definitive Rock Hall library. And we, we stay in contact with him. Um, but he tipped us off to this. So what happened was the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame had created pages for the six inductees on their website, but they had yet to publish them. So if you searched all 16 nominees, those six came back with a access denied to this page message. The other 10, the pages didn't exist, which kind of tipped us off okay you know ask any tech guy if you're creating a website this is you know this is how you would create six, this was six bro- pages. this was brilliant reporting i thought um, this was just wonderful so we did our diligence we called the rock hall we thought it was enough to run with a story but obviously we called the rock hall immediately the reaction from the rock and roll hall of fame we knew we had the correct list they didn't confirm that um and then you know a- as you can expect they were none too happy and and we went back and forth with them. They, we, they actually tried to make you think that you had it wrong so that we'd take it down. Yeah, which, there was a lot of uh, insinuation and in, in, you know, in some ways flat out sort of suggesting yeah, that I, we didn't have the correct list. And obviously anyone who's followed the stories know we had the list uh, the 12, exactly well, right. 12 hours, 16 hours before uh, they were, anyone else published it. Yeah, I love this. It was great reporting. I really, that's that's what we do here, and it was a proud moment to scoop the world by a day. And what a goof by the rock call. I wonder if somebody gets fired over it. This was foreseeable. Anyway, let's get to the class. Who are the musicians that are getting inducted? Uh, there's six performers. Uh, they are Nine Inch Nails, The Notorious B.I.G., Whitney Houston, T-Rex, uh, Kraftwerk, and, oh, I'm sorry, not Kraftwerk, Depeche Mode. That, that's me thinking that's Kraftwerk should have like, got in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we had that Depeche Mode before. and um, <laughs> the Doobie Brothers. Yeah, Doobie that's Brothers. That's your six for this year, and then we can get to the specialty categories in a minute. Yeah, so the special non-musicians, who are they and why are they important? John Landau uh, is Bruce Springsteen's manager. I don't want to simplify his impact. He was a music critic who actually helped break Springsteen's career, a record producer, and then Erzing Azoff, uh, one of the most powerful men in the music industry over the last 25, 30, 40 years, managed the Eagles for most of his career. So so talk a little bit about the, the acts that are getting in. I mean, I'm, I don't think you would quibble with anybody who got in. You might want others to get in, but all of these are worthy, I would think you would agree. Yeah, I always say uh, every artist in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, including these six, are great artists. 
Um, if you look at my Rock Hall rankings, uh, you can kind of see my opinion on all of them. Uh, I wouldn't have voted for the Doobie Brothers, uh, Depeche Ooh. Mode. <laughs> um, not that, but that again, when you say you wouldn't vote for someone, it just means you have five acts you prefer over them. That's all that is. You know, these are great artists. Michael so, McDonald, baby. So, so Nine Inch Nails belongs in for the the the, the idea is the Rock Hall explains that these are people that have affected the work have 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 had yeah, an impact. Yeah, Nine so Inch Nails in. They're one of the bands that invented basically industrial rock, but they are the band that put it on the map. And when you look at the artists that's affected moving forward, they they changed the face of hard rock music and metal. And you you even have hip hop artists today really embracing the industrial sound. When you look at what Kanye West has been doing, um, so Trent Reznor is one of the biggest innovators of the last twenty five years for sure. All right, T Rex, what's their impact? Glam rock, you know, um, Mark Boland's impact goes so far back that he's he he influenced Bowie. You know, um, Roxy Music got in last year. T Rex again, another band they influenced. So in terms of glam rock and art rock, T Rex is one of, if not the most influential band. We'll, we'll talk about this in a minute. There are people criticizing the fact Whitney Houston got in. Let's not do that now. But what is the impact of Whitney Houston? She's the quintessential pop diva. I mean, there's a direct line from Aretha to Whitney. The number of records sold. I think I can go on. You can go on for days. Rihanna, Beyonce, Ariana Grande, Christina Aguilera. These are all descendants of Whitney Houston. And uh, let's carry it forward. What's the, Do- the Doobie Brothers' impact? The Doobie Brothers were huge. I think people don't realize, you know, they were this kind of bluesy-ish band, you know, kind of that, you know, old-timers loved before Michael McDonald joined, and then they blew up. Um, you know, What a Fool Believes, that album, um, the song that that album was on, just took off. They sold a lot of records. Um Maybe their influence is lacking, but again, people who are alive back then, they'll tell you the records were just flying off the shelves. Yeah, they when they put out the first version of the Best of the Doobies, I don't know anybody that didn't yeah. have it. It was a pretty good collection. All right, but I was surprised that Pat Benatar did not make it. She was second in the voting. She's definitely a rocker, and the Rock Hall is constantly being criticized all the time for ignoring women. So hit me with your best shot. Um, <laughs> a generalization? I got that right, right? A generalization, you did. Uh, the voters are sexist. I mean, it, the voter base is sexist. That's not everybody. I don't want to group in every single voter sexist, but they have a, they have a women problem. It is surprising. <laughs> I mean, if you want to pick the kind of the quintessential woman rock act of that period, she's it. I mean, she was the one that kind of launched the MTV era. And in those first years of MTV, everything she did was a video. They were really popular. And and she's not some soft music maker. She she was serious rock and roll. I was stunned that she didn't make it in. Yeah, I th- I'm sure she was close. I, I, I wouldn't be shocked this year, nominating next year. But you look at these artists like Janet Jackson and Joan Jett, um, and Shaka Khan, who isn't in, uh, it takes them three, four years. Look, if you gave a guy Pat Benatar's resume, they'd be in. You, you look at who's been in. Is, is her resume better than Bill Withers? No offense to Bill Withers, but I mean, come on. They, I mean, but that's a problem they should fix. They, they have get, a problem. They, they have a big problem. Every year. So Dave Matthews Band came first in the fan voting, and they didn't get in either. And you noted that this is the first time since fan voting began that the fans were largely ignored. When you get all those people to cast votes, do you risk disillusioning them because they're kind of ignored? Yeah, there's two ways to look at it, right? The Rock Hall has always said the top five vote-getters get one fan ballot among 
over a thousand, maybe up to two thousand ballots that are out there, which that's ridiculous. I don't know how many votes people have for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It ain't a thousand or I'm sorry for the Baseball Hall of Fame. It ain't a thousand. Right. <laughs> um, or you could look at it and say, hey, if the nominating committee is doing their job and they really believe these 16 acts they nominated deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. Why not put the top vote getter of the fan vote in um, what this does? The fan vote became its own worst enemy. Seven acts got in. It was all a coincidence. Seven years in a row. And it was going to end at some time, and it ended with Dave Matthews' band. I don't know how you justify the rock, the fan vote meaning much of anything next year. Unless unless you change it and say the top vote-getter in the fan vote will get in. As they, you point out, they were nominated, so clearly there was a thought that they they have a it, shot at being And there. Troy wrote a really good story this week about, he's like, even if you don't like Dave Matthews' band and you can like, you know, just roll your eyes at the long interludes or whatever in the shows that they have like this very impressive resume that even if you're not a fan, like you should be able to appreciate how they change music. Yeah. There's several nineties, two thousands bands. I, I would take over Dave Matthews band. That's just my personal, personal preference. But what are we doing here? You know, you, you got this Google set up where, where you're voting this year and you're just constantly sharing it. The rock halls, they might, cause because the way they operate their Twitter, the Pat Benatar, vote for Pat Benatar thing might still be pinned at the top of their <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> so to me, it's like, what are we doing? That's That was flooding all their social media channels, the fan vote. So when you, and it, it, let's go past it. Only one act out of the top five got in, the Doobie Brothers. Judas Priest, uh, Soundgarden, also not, not in there. So what, I, what are we doing? I don't understand the point of it all. So in a different kind of aspect, Whitney Houston and the Notorious B.I.G. are both dead. So what does the Rock Hall <laughs> Mark do? Mark Bolin for T-Rex is dead as well. Okay, yeah, so well, there you go. So what do they do when it comes to the performances that go with the inductions? They get other people to sing their songs? Sometimes. It's up to the estate. I don't think uh, Valletta Wallace, Biggie's mother, would have a problem with that. But you also have to look at, look, Biggie and Whitney are the two biggest names, without question, in terms of the pop culture zeitgeist. Look who's going to induct them. Minimum Diddy. You know, one of the biggest music moguls in the world. If for some reason he doesn't want to do it, let's call Jay Z. So <laughs> either of them's in, and he can bring Beyonce, right? Yeah, it, it, we talk right. Well, that's my dream is just call Jay Z, Beyonce, tell him to do Whitney and, and Biggie. Um, but yeah, th that's the level of presenter. Someone's gonna sing a Whitney Houston song or two. Some great singer. Um, so you have that. So that takes care of itself. I don't know what you do for T Rex. I think you do get people who come in and perform songs for those artists and usually they do a great job um, as we've seen in previous years um, you know Alabama shakes Brittany Howard performed for sister Rosetta Tharp she did an amazing job they, they typically do that so John Landau is the guy who who went and saw Bruce Springsteen perform way back in the <laughs> early 70s and wrote the famous line I've seen the future of rock and roll his name is Bruce Springsteen you know, Landau's done a bunch of stuff. He's he's also very active, actually, in the in the Rock Hall Foundation. So you would think Springsteen could be the one who inducts him. Surely you would think he would be in the house. Would he play? Because it's not really about him. Here's the thing. And I, I got to credit Eric Heisig, one of our other solid reporters. He was on earlier. He today. said, you know, he said to me, he goes, Springsteen's going to do the jam. You know, the all-star jam at the end. That's the minimum. Look, I don't have any insider information on this. Let me tell you what I think happened. They were like, hey, we should put John Landau in. Then somebody called Bruce Springsteen <laughs> said, we put John Landau in. Will you induct him? Because that's exactly what happened, Paul McCartney will tell right. you, with Ringo Starr. Right. Is they called up Paul McCartney and Paul said, if you induct Ringo, I'll show up in Cleveland. 
That's what's going on here. This is HBO. It's going to be live for the first time on that network. In they Cleveland? Want, in Cleveland. They want Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band on stage shouting out John Landau and performing a song. Well, I'm all for that. So <laughs> Everyone's a, all I'm for a, that. I'm a Jersey boy. It's, that's your so. headliner, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street well, Band. Except for if Jay-Z and Beyonce are here. Yeah, I mean, and the Doobie Brothers, but it's different. It's it's different generations, though, right? Like that. This is the goal of this ceremony this year. Live okay. on HBO, we're in the middle of these streaming wars of all these networks trying to get people to watch uh, their service that's streaming now live. They want to cover all their bases. They want to get the young. They want to get the old. And they want to get the in between. They're gonna have that. It's gonna be huge. We just can't have speeches by the East Street Band. No, no E Street Band speeches. Well, well, I hate this kind of like a double-edged sword. You have three dead acts, so you only get one speech for each. Like Biggie's mother would be the only one speaking for him. And then Trent Reznor's the only member of Nine Inch Nails being inducted. We really just have to worry about the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Ten or whatever. How many other guys are going in? They're the only act that probably needs a talking to. So <laughs> keep your speeches at a minimum, Doobies. <laughs> I like your vision. All right, thanks, Troy, and congratulations again on the big scoop. Thank you. All right, Laura, as usual, we're here for the last few minutes to wrap it up. And it seems like the Sherwin-Williams discussion was one of the, the more interesting ones today. That was my favorite. I think we could talk for a long time about this, um, speculating still where they want to go. I mean, they the company has been incredibly tight-lipped about this and has not said even where the sites they're considering are. Um, and we've only heard from sources, I believe, that they're planning to stay in town. So, um, well, they did. They did. I mean, we did report they formally notified the city and county oh, they're going to stay in town without being specific on it. But right. there's a local blogger who's actually been wrong as often as he's been right, uh, but who has had some good scoops on where it's going. And he, you know, saying that the main headquarters would be on the parking lots out next to and public, public square, square, which is. What was my dream for 2020, right? Okay. Like, to get rid of those dopey parking lots. But the other part was that they're going to put their paint experimentation facility on the Scranton Peninsula, which seemed a little odd to me that you would take a chemical experimentation facility and put it on the banks of the Cuyahoga River now that we've gotten the river cleaned up and is so close to the lake. Um, but I guess that blogger is saying now that there might be a contamination issue on the Scranton Peninsula that would preclude that. Well, and I've also heard that there's a lot of meetings between folks in the headquarters building and R&D and that the idea was to bring them closer together because, you know, right now they would just go downstairs and kind of walk down the steps by Tower City um, and that they'd be losing a lot of valuable time if they were making their executives trek back and forth. So, but I, I mean, this idea about secrecy, about cover, you know, taxpayer money um, being spent or offered to keep the company in town. I just wonder, you know, who's the one behind it saying we don't want this information to get out? Well, the other the other issue with this, and this is a bit distressing, is, you, you know, you have a disgruntled person in the community that managed to get the signatures to put a ballot issue on on March 17th, where city residents can vote to shrink their council. And, and we, pay them less. All right. And we, well, and the pay less issue is a little bit different because they, 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 the council was a little bit sleazy in the way it bumped its salary by $20,000 by without a vote. But but the number thing is interesting. Bob Higgs has been doing research. And the, the purpose of this council from the beginning was to be your conduit to City Hall. And mm -hmm. if you reduce that number, you're disenfranchising Cleveland. And so this is a very cynical attempt to take 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 advantage of the malaise of people to do something and, and shrink the council. Well, 
when when people start thinking about you're going to give away the store to a corporation and hide it from me, it only pushes them further in the direction of shrinking the council, which really is not a good idea. I, I, I think an objective look at this would be that shouldn't happen. It's better for the residents of Cleveland to have access to City Hall. But that secrecy, it, you shouldn't do it. You're a servant of the public. Don't be secret. Yeah, and this is an issue, obviously, that comes up over and over again for us with the city, especially, and the county, um, that we always want more information than they want to give us. But when it comes down to something this big, um, I think people deserve to know. I, I really thought everybody had learned the lesson through Amazon. I mean, we and the other media just kicked their butts on that in the court. They and lost. Amazon didn't even like want uh, want to come here. We didn't even make the top finalists. And partly people were saying it's because they didn't want secrecy. And it was the biggest sweetheart deal. I mean, never had the city been willing to give away pure income tax increases. Um, but they lost. They lost at every juncture. They had to give it up. It was it, the, the whole community was talking about it. When the idea came out, people were not happy about the idea. They thought it was a lame attempt. Many people still think it should have been on Burke Lakefront. Uh, but they didn't learn their lesson because they're clearly paving the road right now to try and keep this stuff secret down the road. Yeah, I don't know. We're, we'll keep pushing, obviously. So. All right, that wraps up the episode. Thank you for listening to This Week in the CLE. It's available wherever you get your podcasts, so hit your subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back next Thursday with another. And on Saturday, we'll be back with a short special episode where we just ask the lingering questions of the big stories of the week. 